Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Luke chapter 6, getting ready to start the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 17. We'll run it down to verse 26 for this audio. The Sermon on the Mount is mainly paralleled in Matthew 5, so I'm going to splice in my discussion of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, which will cover basically what, we're, what we've got here in Luke. The last audio, we had Jesus selected as 12 apostles, so I assume they were there hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Matthew 5 has a lot more about the Sermon on the Mount than Luke does, so I'm not going to go through all of Matthew 5. I'm just going to go through the parts of Matthew 5 that have the pieces of the Sermon on the Mount that match what Jesus says in Luke. In Matthew, of course, there's a fuller discussion of it. So right now, let me splice in that audio the audio discussing Matthew 5, 1 through, 1 through 12 begins now. We're going to start on Matthew chapter 5 in this audio. I think it'll take me about three audios to finish the chapter. We have in this chapter the Sermon on the Mount and that controverted verse about the law. Jesus said, not one jot or tittle, not one stroke or letter of the law will pass away. All right, so let's start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. We also have the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, which is also a difficult piece of Scripture to interpret. So this chapter is going to be meaty. Chapter, uh, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, first of all, who was he teaching? It's not exactly clear. He saw crowds, he went up on the mountain, he sat down, the disciples came to him, and then he started teaching them. Was he teaching the crowds off the side of the mountain, or was he just teaching the, the, the disciples? In my humble opinion, here he looks like he's just teaching the disciples. Me, he's not teaching the crowd, but it is ambiguous. One of my commentators says that sometimes he speaks to the disciples, and sometimes he speaks to the crowd. I don't know how he knows that. But at any rate, he uh, I believe that this teaching is so ethically paramount, so ethically high, that only disciples could even begin to receive this teaching that he gave. Now, this is the famous Sermon on the Mount, but that phrase sermon is not in the scriptures. That's a man-made term or a modern term that's put on the, the teaching here. And the problem with that is sermon has so many ecclesiastical connotations that are cultural. We hear a sermon and we think of a preacher standing up behind a pulpit giving a, a, a rhetorical harangue. But this was a teaching and he was probably just teaching his disciples. He was probably not waxing eloquent like a Greek rhetorician. It was just a teaching. You know, the the term sermon is uh, ambiguous not only because it sounds like Greek oratory, but also because it's often used in two different senses. One sense is you're teaching people that are already saved, in which case basically you've got a teaching. Another use of the term sermon is you're evangelizing people who are not saved, and we use the term for both situations. In my opinion, it's best just to say teaching and evangelizing. That way there's no ambiguity. Even if you say preaching, it's the same thing. Are you preaching to the saved or are you preaching to the lost? The term is not, the English terms are not precise enough. So, but this was a teaching, I believe it was to the disciples. Now, there's dispute on about the occasion of it. Some people say that the Sermon on the Mount, the so-called Sermon on the Mount, was a single occasion, and that's what I'm going to assume here, because I like to assume simplicity when I have the choice. Some people say it was a compilation of teachings given on several different occasions. doesn't sound like that to me when you read it, but I'm not a textual critic, excuse me, a uh, New Testament Bible scholar, so I don't know. 
but I'm assuming it's uh, a teaching on the mountain. Now, the problem with this teaching is the ethics are so high. Uh, how do you deal with that? I mean, you know, love your enemies? Well, some people say, well, the ethics are so high, it was only meant to be fulfilled in the future kingdom of, in heaven. Some of the classic dispensationalists would say this. This is for the future millennium. And obviously, we Christians in our gap, in our parenthesis church, there's no way we can love our enemies and turn the other cheek and all that kind of thing. Other people say, no, the Sermon on the Mount is the standard for all Christians today, but it's impossible to fulfill that in the Christian's own power, and that's the position I take. It's for us today. However, having said that, we have to interpret it properly and realize that sometimes Jesus used hyperbole, which we are not supposed to try to fulfill literally. And my classic example of this is Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, If your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, years ago, when I was in my 20s, I met a young man who read that and took it literally, and he ripped his eyes out. I guess he thought he was lusting after somebody or something. He ripped his eyes out. He's blind for the rest of his life. Any dispensationalist that tells me that I'm not interpreting the Bible literally enough, that's the example I'm going to give back. I say, okay, well, how about this guy? He interpreted the Bible just a little bit too literally. So we have to be careful to interpret the uh, Sermon on the Mount properly and not take hyperbole, hyperbole, excuse me, not take hyperbole uh, literally. Now, there's also a split of scholarly opinion on whether this sermon that Jesus gives, this discourse, is the same as the so-called Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. The scholars will argue both ways. I don't know. I'm just going to assume it's two different sermons just to keep things easier. Now, where's the mountain that he spoke on? The exact location is unknown. It's probably up in the north somewhere because the context here is all these people from Decapolis and from Syria coming to hear him. Uh, but the inter- but many scholars bore this out, and I think this is reasonable, that Jesus deliberately went up on a mountain because he's trying to show that he is the new lawgiver, Moses was the old lawgiver, and by golly, Jesus' law is going to prevail now. He's going to abrogate Moses' law, and he's going to then present a new law. Of course, that's New Covenant theology. Then I've a study Bible which is not committed to New Covenant theology, does make the point that the new law, like the old, was given from a mountain. This is significant. Now, there's some. that's probably the reason why he did it, but there's some other possible practical reasons why he was up on a mountain. Uh, for example, uh, to pray by himself. He often would get away from the crowds to be by himself to pray, but of course he was trying to teach here. So maybe he was just trying to shun the multitude so he could teach his disciples, or it could be he was trying to teach the multitude because he was on the side of a mountain. He could project his voice over a, 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 a large area. But as I said, I, it sounds to me like he was teaching the disciples, not the multitudes. I really don't think that's what it is. But I think the real reason he was up on that mountain was to show that he's the new lawgiver. He's the new Moses. It says in verse 1 that he sat while he taught. This was common custom for Jewish rabbis to sit when they taught. He taught his disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple in the literal Greek is a learner, someone who wants to learn. Uh, not necessarily the original 12 disciples. It's rather a general company of disciples, whoever they might be. All right, so let's go to verse 3, Matthew 5, verse 3. Jesus starts the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, that's where we get the word Beatitude from, a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, let's talk about that word, blessed, first. It has three ing- words in the English, and so we have to, to distinguish those definitions out to, to stay unconfused. The first meaning is happy. 
So happy of the poor in spirit. That's a general definition. For most people, it refers to good external circumstances. Uh, the pagan was blessed when he won the lottery. Okay, you can say that. But for Christians, when you say the Christians are blessed, it means we have spiritual joy. We could be temporal too, temporal happiness, but also spiritual happiness because we share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. So happy spiritually, spiritually happy are the poor in spirit. Another definition of blessed, which is not used here, is to worship God. For example, bless the Lord, O my soul, as the psalmist says. And another definition of blessed is just to get a good thing that comes from without. I was blessed when somebody gave me a computer. All right. Now, we're going to see that the Old Testament, the Beatitudes are couched in language that comes from the Old Testament as we go through the Beatitudes. This is to show that the new kingdom is, uh, it morphs, if, if you will, is transformed from the old kingdom into the new. There's continuity there. Now, I don't believe there's so much continuity as Reformed Covenant theologians like to say and say that, well, the, Jesus, Jesus was just refashioning or, or explaining what Moses was and, Mo, and the Mosaic Law is what the Ten Commandments is what we're under today. I don't believe that, I believe, but I do believe there's some continuity between the Old Covenant and the New as um, just like uh, a moth turns into a butterfly. The Old Testament Law being the moth and Jesus' Law from the Sermon on the Mount being the butterfly. Now, this verse here in verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, we, you, one tends to think when we see that, is that it's the kingdom that's consummated at the end of time, and we'll be blessed then. Well, that's true, we will be, but we've got to remember that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said in other places, in, previous, in fact, in the previous chapter. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means soon. That means right now. So those blessings that these people, were, these disciples were being blessed with by Jesus, they were to begin right then. And it's a good thing, too, because he's also going to talk about persecution they're going to receive. So, and mourning. So we need to remember, when we talk about the blessings of the kingdom, we have some of them now and we have some of them at the end because the kingdom is already but not yet. As so many theologians and Bible teachers like to say, using that phrase, I'm going to use it too. The kingdom is already and not yet. But already means that we participate in some of the benefits of the kingdom as well as persecutions that come to the kingdom. Verse 4 in Matthew chapter 5, those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. Why would people mourn? Well, they could be mourning for their own sins. As three of my commentators say, they mourn because they are miserable, because they're, they know that they're sinful, and they're going to be comforted because their sins will be forgiven. It could be, as one of my commentators says, that people are mourning because their external circumstances are so bad. Well, that could be too. People could be mourning in general, and just for the, this is my idea, for the pitiful, ungodly state of the world. But however we're mourning, it's all going to be taken care of in the consummation of the kingdom and in the establishment of the kingdom and in the growth of the kingdom and in the inauguration of the kingdom as Jesus was getting ready to inaugurate his kingdom. Anybody who was in his kingdom is going to be comforted even though he's mourning beforehand. Matthew chapter 5 verse 5. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Another beatitude, bless, blessings. Now, gentle is um, humble. Uh, actually, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37 here, Psalm 37, verse 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Now, Psalm 37 translates uh, the, the word for earth as land, and they translate the word 
or at least the Holman Christian Study Bible translates the word for gentle as humble. So the Psalm 37 says the humble will inherit the land and will enjoy abundant prosperity. Matthew says the gentle, not the humble, are blessed doesn't, uh, because they inherit the, the earth. Matthew doesn't say they will inherit the land in abundant prosperity. So let's talk about this a minute. Uh, first of all, what does gentle mean? What does it mean that gentle people will be blessed? The NIV uh, translates it as meek. The meek are blessed. What does that refer to? According to my NIV study Bible notes, meek doesn't refer so much as an attitude towards man, but towards God. In other words, humility. That's the best way to look at it. Hum, gentle, the gentle or the humble. We're humble before God and we'll be blessed. We might, and we might even be humble in our circumstances. But we're going to inherit either the earth or the land, uh, depending on how you translate that. I've always taken that earth as being the earth because at the end of time, Christians will rule the earth. And that could very well be. But that kind of comfort to these poor and oppressed people that Jesus was talking to is a long, long way off. Let's look at something that people don't often think about, that you can translate that as land. What was the land a symbol of in the Old Testament? The land flowing with milk and honey? Let me give you a quote from Adam Clark. The la uh, he translates it, the land. He says, under this expression, which was commonly used by the prophets to signify the land of Canaan, in which all temporal good abounded, in other words, land flowing with milk and honey, uh, under that expression that the prophets used, Jesus Christ points out the abundance of spiritual good, which was provided for men in the gospel. So Canaan, the land, was a type of the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom. And who is so likely to inherit glory as the man in whom the meekness and gentleness of Jesus dwell? So in other words, what Clark is saying is, is that land is a type of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is deliberately referring to the type to, to, to indicate to his hearers that they're going to inherit a kingdom that is flowing with milk and honey, speaking metaphorically. I'll give you an example of this in Judges 18. Five, uh, I wouldn't call them spies, let's say five men from the tribe of Dan went out to look at the area they were trying to conquer, as, uh, and they said, Come on, come on, let's go up against them, for we have seen the land, and it is very good. The land is very good. Why wait? Don't hesitate to go and invade and take possession of the land. When you get there, you will come to an unsuspecting people and a spacious land. For God has handed it over to you. It is a place where nothing on earth is lacking. Land is a symbol of prosperity. Milk and honey. So I think that Jesus is saying, look, you guys are mourning. You're going to inherit the land. You're going to inherit a land of milk and honey. Now, it's not going to be the physical land of Israel like in the Old Testament because that's the type. But the land that you inherit is going to be the kingdom of God. That's the antitype. So I'm, I'm not sure that Jesus was really talking about us ruling the earth at the end of time. Could be, though. I won't say either way. Matthew 5, verse 6 says this. Jesus continues. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Now, righteousness has two types of meaning. Uh, we can talk about civic righteousness, where somebody's good in the eyes of society and the, and the law. For example, he doesn't rob, kill, steal break into houses, peeping Tom, and that kind of thing, just your basic civic righteousness. But there's a lot of people who obey the law and who are total SOBs. They're not righteous, and they're not legally righteous before God or forensically righteous, declared righteous because the blood of Jesus has washed them clean for every sin. Well, Jesus is probably not talking about legal or forensic righteousness here because he hadn't died and shed his blood yet. He's talking about just basic righteousness, basic conformity to the law, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say. 
So if you hunger and thirst, even for that kind of righteousness, a lower type of righteousness, but you hunger and thirst, look at it not as a neutral thing, but something that you desire from the bottom of your heart, you're going to be filled. You're going to be made whole. You're going to be saturated, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown put it. You're going to be saturated with, doesn't say you're going to be saturated with what? I think it means saturated with satisfaction. You're going to be satisfied to the to the max, satisfied with your righteousness too. You're going to have righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Now, interestingly here, merciful mercy also has two meanings. The obvious meaning that we immediately think about is forgiveness. We pardon injuries. But it can also have another meaning. It can mean alms. For example, um, I give you mercy means I give you money. Give mercy to the poor. Show mercy to the poor means give money to the poor. So people who are forgiving and who give money to the poor are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Verse 8 in Matthew 5, the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. Now heart is the uh, non-material part of man. It includes your mind, will, and emotion. Some people just say your spirit. It just means the, the non-corporeal part of mankind. So it means your ideas, your thoughts are pure. I don't think that needs to be explained. That's clear. When you have a pure heart, you will see God. Now, what does that mean? It means you will have intimate fellowship with God. It doesn't mean you're going to see him physically, for God is a spirit. You don't see spirits. And also, even if you did see a spirit, as we'll see, that will kill you. No one can see God and live. God told Moses. So this is meaning, this word here for seeing God means to, to have intimate fellowship with him. And so, as a prerequisite for that intimate fellowship, you've got to have a pure heart. Of course, Jesus is going to give us a pure heart with his blood sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice, which is coming up shortly in about three years. Now, let's talk about seeing God. First of all, it's a terrible thing to see God. Exodus 33, verse 20 says this, But he, God, answered to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Now that means to see God with none of his glory hidden. You can't see God in his full-throated glory, his full-orbed glory. You can't do that. You're going to die. Isaiah 6, verse 5, Then I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, well, he didn't see God in his unshielded glory. He saw a vision of God. This is where he had the six-winged seraphim floating around on the, uh, next to the throne of God. So, see, you can see a symbolic vision of God and not die. Um, but, at any rate, but that's not my point here. My point here is a terrible thing to see God because you see him an awesome thing to see God. When I say terrible, I mean awesome. An awesome thing to see God because you're going to die if you see him without his glory shielded. And notice Isaiah, he said, woe is me, I just saw God. <laughs> Why? Because the, the holiness of God sort of scared him. Okay, so that's the first thing. But we're going to see God anyway because the second point we need to make, seeing God is a blessed thing. It's a blessed thing to see God even though it's a terrible thing to see God. It's possible to see God and have it be a blessing but only under certain conditions. First of all, perhaps God hides his glory. Then you can see God. God Moses, remember, wanted to see God. And God said, no, you can't see me and live. But then God mercifully let Moses see him partially because he took Moses, hit, hit him in the cleft of the rock, and then passed Moses by. So Moses was shielded from the, all of the glory of God. This is in Exodus chapter 33. So God can hide his glory and we can see him. God can appear as a Christophany, appear as Jesus, in the, especially in the Old Testament. 
For example, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at Succoth, or Abraham receiving those three men when he was looking for righteous men down there in Sodom. Couldn't find them. But those three men, one of them was Christ, Jesus, I'm sure. Those are Christophanies. Well, that's basically just another way of saying that God shielded his glory because when he incarnates like that, when Jesus appears incarnate, you can look at him and not die. Obviously, people look at Jesus all the time for three, three and a half years. I mean, for all of his life, actually, and they didn't die because God's glory was shielded. Uh, all right, so this thing here about the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God, that means see him spiritually, see him not in his full glory, but see him partially. Now, here's let's look at some scriptures uh, that show that it's a blessed thing to see God. Psalms 17, verse 15, But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. So you see, it's a good thing to see God, to know him, basically. Revelation 22, 4, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The saints will see God's face. Doesn't mean they see him in all of his glory, but they see him enough to know him. Seeing somebody, is Adam Clark says, is a Hebraism which signifies possess God, enjoy his felicity, as seeing a thing was used among the Hebrews for possessing it. In other words, I see God, that means I possess him. I enjoy his felicity. I enjoy him making me happy, making me blessed. It could refer, Adam Clark goes on to say, as an allusion to the rights of the Levitically clean to enter the sanctuary in the presence of God. Clark quotes Psalm 63, verse 2, So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Well, the only way you're going to get into the the sanctuary to see God's strength and God's glory is to be Levitically clean and obedient. Of course, all that Levitical cleanliness, all those Levitical cleanliness laws were symbols of the the necessity of worshipers to be holy. Now, Seeing can also be a reference to the, to the fact that the pure in heart will live forever so they can see God. In other words, the pure in heart are blessed for they will see God when they die and they won't go to hell. They'll see him in heaven, which is an interesting way to look at that. But it could be this is Adam Clark's idea. Job 19 verses 26 through 27, Job says this, Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Even after I'm dead, I will still see God in my flesh. I will see him myself, for I, my eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger, my heart longs within me. In other words, that just means to enjoy the fellowship with God after you die, says Job. So you see there's a lot in that simple word, see, see God. What, and one place, um, there's a place in John chapter 1, I think it is, no one, I can't remember where it is, the first of John where it says no one has seen God, but God, but Jesus has explained God. Well, we will see God. It could be we will see God by looking at Jesus. We're not going to see him in all of his glory. We're never going to know everything that God knows because that would kill us. But we're going to see him. We're going to see enough of him that we're going to be perfectly satisfied and filled. All right, let's go to verse 9 in Matthew 5. The peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God. Now, remember, Jesus is describing people in his kingdom, pure in heart, gentle, peacemakers. You get a feel for what the characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of God are, and it's not the same characteristics of a citizen of the world. If you describe a good citizen of the world, it just means you don't rape, kill, steal, rob, and embezzle, and peeping Tom, you know. But here Jesus is talking about citizens of the kingdom. They're gentle, they're pure, they're peacemakers. All right, what does peacemakers mean? Well, it could mean making peace between God and man. And, of course, nobody can do that except Jesus. But I guess what you could do is secondarily make peace by leading people to Jesus. And that brings peace between God and man. Maybe so, but I don't think so. It probably means peace between men and men. Adam Clark, I've got some great rhetoric here. 
from Adam Clark. A peacemaker is a man who, being endowed with a generous public spirit, labors for the public good and feels his own interest promoted in promoting that of others. Therefore, instead of fanning the fire of strife, he uses his influence and wisdom to reconcile the contending parties, adjust their differences, and restore them to a state of unity. I remember dealing with a guy one time. I and several of my brothers had to deal with him. And everywhere he went, there was strife. I mean, it was like fire where he walked. Churches split. People angry with each other. I've never seen anything like it. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. Well, that's not a characteristic of the kingdom of God. Peacemakers, citizens of the kingdom of God, do everything they can to avoid strife. War only in, in the last resort. Now, that, peacemaking does not mean surrendering supinely to unrighteousness. Sometimes you got to know when to hold them and not fold them. Sometimes you got to stay in the fight because you have to protect the innocent. Peacemaking is not pacifism. And unfortunately, the word has been used that way for too much. And it kind of takes away from the, the genuine use of the word, which is at, at all costs, Unless some, unless righteousness is being trampled on, unless the truth is being trampled on, but if it's just because of some personal reason, don't fight. Make peace. Matthew 5 verse 10 says this, Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, here Jesus is try, probably trying to prepare his disciples for the persecution that he knows is coming upon them. And as a matter of fact, didn't he say they will persecute you from synagogue to synagogue? which is exactly what they did after Jesus died. He, they went after the, the disciples and tried to stomp them out. Told the, God used the Romans to stomp them out in AD 70 and destroyed the whole city, the whole kingdom. Men of the world instinctively hate righteousness. It's just in their genes to hate people in the kingdom because they, they're, they're rebuked implicitly when somebody says, I'm going to be gentle and a peacemaker. Somebody in the world says, I'm not gentle and I'm not a peacemaker. I don't like to hear that. I don't like to hear that, and it keeps getting worse and worse. For example, today in our society, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Oh, you hate homosexuals. You're a homophobe. We're going we're gonna to use the government to, to deprive you of hundreds of thousands of dollars of fines because we don't like you. Oh, we could go get a, a gay wedding cake at another bakery. There's a lot of them around. But we're going to go to the Christian bakery and make a big deal out of it so you can get fined by the government. That's the kind of attitude that people have that aren't Christians. They go out of their way to look to shut up Christians because they don't like the light that's shining into their darkness. They don't like it. Now, this beatitude is one that had its ground in the Old Testament because the Jews that Jesus was talking to knew about the terrible persecution of Old Testament saints. For example, Jeremiah and Elijah, remember Jeremiah ended up being treated terribly, he was thrown into a cistern and imprisoned. Elijah had to run away from Jezebel who tried to kill him and he ended up for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai in the desert down there in the south. So these disciples hearing this sermon, they knew about persecution. And Jesus was getting them ready. Persecution's coming. However, the good news is you're blessed because the kingdom of heaven is yours. In other words, yeah, you're going to get persecuted, but the end of it all is you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven where there's all kinds of glory. Glory inexpressible, unspeakable, full of joy. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about this desire of the world to hate you. Jesus is talking in John 7, verse 7. He's talking to his blood brothers, his unbelieving blood brothers. The world cannot hate you. But it does hate me because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. Nobody likes to hear that their deeds are evil. And so they react and they respond. They persecute. And Jesus is saying to his unbelieving brothers, hey, the world's not going to hate you because you don't believe. Then he goes down. Then we go down to John 15, verse 19. Jesus is now not talking to his unbelieving brothers, but he's talking to his believing 
disciples. And he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of it, the world hates you. So there's this constant tension, not just tension, but constant conflict between the kingdom of God and the world. And it's never going to stop and it never will. Now, let us let me give you a quote here about these meek and gentle Christians who are going to be persecuted rather than fighting, who are going to be, who are going to be turning the other cheek rather than starting wars, peacemakers. This is a great quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Poverty of spirit runs counter to the pride of men's heart. A pensive disposition in the view of one's universal deficiencies before God is ill-relished by the callous, indifferent, laughing, self-satisfied world. A meek and quiet spirit, taking wrong, is regarded as pusillanimous and rasps against the proud, resentful spirit of the world. That craving after spiritual blessings rebukes but too unpleasantly the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. So does a merciful spirit, the hard-heartedness of the world, rebukes the hard-heartedness of the world. Purity of heart contrasts painfully with painted hypocrisy. And the peacemaker cannot easily be endured by the contentious, quarrelsome world. And that quote, which I think is fantastic, it shows that every quality, every characteristic, every attribute of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven directly rebukes the citizen of the world. And so there's going to be persecution. Matthew 5, verse 11, you are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you. I mentioned persecution in the previous verse and here too, but persecution is not just receiving insults. It says falsely say every kind of evil against you. That persecution involves insults, but this word persecute is a Greek word, uh, dioko, which means to legally persecute somebody. It's a forensic legal term. It signifies legal persecutions and public accusations. So you're talking about going to jail because you follow Jesus. And again, I believe Jesus was preparing his disciples because that's exactly what was going to happen to them. They were going to be hounded from the synagogues. They were going to be dragged before the Jewish magistrates. And look at the book of Acts. Everywhere Paul went, everywhere the apostles went, they were dragged before the courts. The Jews, of course, had to use the Romans in Asia Minor, but they basically dragged them before the courts and tried to get them thrown into jail. Now, it says, you are blessed when they insult and persecute you because of me, because of Jesus. Now, he's not talking about saying getting persecuted because you do some unrighteous thing. Oh, I robbed a bank and the laws persecute me. That's not what it means, of course. Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, here Jesus points out that they might not survive the persecution. But even if they don't survive the persecution, their reward is great in heaven. In fact, of, of Jesus' early 12 disciples, the only one that survived to a ripe old age was John. Peter and Paul got killed in Jerusalem, by, uh, in Rome, about AD 63. And, and if you go through, Thomas, I think, was supposed to be martyred in India. A lot of it's church history, uh, tradition and church history as well as the scriptures. But none of them, John was the only one that really made it for a long time. They did persecute, but look at the reward they got in heaven. We've got to remember that. The Christian life and life itself makes no sense unless you factor heaven in because there's not justice in this world. There will be no complete justice until heaven reigns, until the, the justice of the great assize at the end of time, until that happens, there's not going to be perfect justice down here. Jesus says, look, they persecuted the prophets. The prophets were godly people. They're going to persecute you too. And again, I mentioned Jeremiah and Elijah who were persecuted. 
Your reward is great in heaven. Again, we there are rewards for being a Christian here, but we can't forget the rewards in heaven are even greater. That's the greatest reward when we die. We always need to be heavenly minded, which is hard to do because we live in this earth. But think about our destination. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I've returned from my splice of Matthew 5, 1 through 12, talking about the Summer on the Mount, which covers Luke 6, verses 17 through 26. I hope you enjoyed this audio, and the next audio will continue with Luke's version of the Summer on the Mount.